to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director. We're going to be talking about a pressing problem in the church, namely that fewer and fewer people are coming to church. A new survey revealed that the numbers are dropping off astronomically. So we're going to kick that around, discuss why it is and what we can do about it. Before we get there, though, Bishop Aaron, welcome. It's good to be with you. Thanks, Brandon. How's life in Orlando? It's pretty good. It's it's sunny. Weather's good. We've just started getting rain back, which in our little farm here, it, it's finally for the first time in my life, I think I've appreciated weather cycles and needing rain. Yeah, whereas, we need uh, rain in I California. How far are you we'll from Orlando itself? Like an hour? About ha- about half an hour. Just a half hour. Orlando. Okay. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's talk about this new survey from Gallup. Um, the survey headline was that U.S. church membership falls below majority for first time. And here's what they found, that the proportion of Americans who consider themselves members of a church, synagogue, or mosque has dropped below 50% for the first time in American history. And they also found it's happened very recently and very quickly. So in 1999, just over 20 years ago, that number was 70%. 70% of people had a membership or identified in a member way with either a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Doesn't mean they attended weekly, but they associated themselves with that. Today, it's 47%. So in 20 years, we've gone from 70% to 47%. Bishop, what are your first impressions upon hearing that? Well, you know, my, here's a, first I have a question. Um, we've talked a lot about the nuns, right? And I've been using the stat of about 26% of our country now identifies as a nun. What is the difference between that and this finding? So I took a nun to mean someone that says, I claim no religious affiliation. Um, does this mean we've gone from 26 to, you know, 49? Uh, how would you make that distinction here? I don't know. I think the the key distinction is self-identifying as, you know, I'm a Catholic as a or member I'm of a, a Presbyterian church. versus yeah. being a member of that church. But it seems like both of those trajectories are moving right. in the same direction. And that, that's the, the main thing, right? So in a way, I'm not surprised. No, I've been, I've been tracking this now for a long time. And I've talked about, you know, the move from like 6% of our country in about 1990 would have said I'm a nun. Now it's, you know, 26. So a similar thing here a kind of falling off the cliff with these numbers. It's not like a gradual decline, which you typically find in these things. This is a precipitous decline. So yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. I've been watching it for a long time. Um, and especially among young people, you know, so your generation and younger. Um, and I go back to my reading of Jean Twenge's book, you know, where she was tracing that, that we used to say, oh, they'll, you know, they, they're still kind of spiritual, these people. And she's saying, no, no, increasingly, they're not spiritual at all you know, because they've lost the connection to their churches. So yeah, it's obviously a very troubling thing. I think maybe this gets at your question too, Bishop, of what's the difference between the nuns and those who don't identify with a a particular church. I imagine a big part of that gap is a number of people who still say, I'm a Christian, so I'm not a nun, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a member of any church. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't go to church, I'm not associated with any denomination, any tradition. Um, again, we've seen this number sinking over the last several years, but in the last 20 years, it's just dropped off a cliff. Um, here's another stat from the Gallup survey. They said that among Americans who do say that they're religious, so these are people who self-identify not as none, but as religious, 
only 60% of those religious people belong to a church, a synagogue, Mm -hmm. or a mosque. So just over half of religious Americans think it's important to belong to a formal religious community. Is that a major concern to you? Oh, gosh, of course. You know, the problem is rendering religion or spirituality abstract. When you say I'm religious or I'm spiritual, but no connection to a church, that means I'm not really practicing my faith in an embodied way. I'm not part of a community of mutual support. Uh, I've turned my faith into a, a private abstraction, if you want. I know that appeals to a lot of people today because I'm the inventor of my values. And so I turn religion into one more kind of privately invented and privately entertained value. But that's just not authentic religion. Um, The interiorization of the faith, which is also concomitant with the the privatization of the faith, which our culture has been pressing now for a long time. It's a private matter like a hobby. So, I mean, I see all that as, as, um, as contributing to this uh, decline. I also, Brandon, I go back a lot to the universities. I know like when Jordan Peterson talks about some of the, the uh, attitudes within our culture that I th- he thinks are rather poisonous, he does trace a lot of it back now to several generations of a sort of indoctrination at the level of the universities. And I can't help but think when even, you know, I've complained about this, even at our, many of our Catholic universities, when the overwhelming majority of the philosophy departments are atheist, well, that, that even there, what are young people taking in but a steady diet of you know atheism and opposition to religion, a stress on the corruption of religion? And when that happens now over generations, uh, that contributes you know, to this, this negative attitude. Now, I'm not going to place all the blame outside. We got plenty of blame. Um, you know, the last 25 years within Catholicism, just the level of scandal and misbehavior and very, very bad witness to the faith. I mean, that certainly has contributed. Because it's gone on for so long. Think of, you know, the the real serious sex abuse scandals broke in 2002. That's 20 years ago now, you know? So that's a whole generation that's come of age under this cloud. So that certainly has contributed uh, on, on the Catholic side to this falling away. You know, these statistics represent millions of people. There's millions of American adults who are not members of a church or a mosque or a synagogue, but still identify as religious or spiritual. What would you say to one of them if you were having a conversation and they asked you, look, why, why does it matter whether I go to church? Like, I can still believe in God. I can be a good person. What does church have to offer me? Why is it important? I'd say because you're not an angel. Uh, That's basically Thomas Aquinas' answer. You know, that human beings are body and soul. And uh, it's a kind of angelism that says, well, I I can just do all this in my own mind or within my own will, within my own spirit, as though I'm not embodied. Because to say embodied means to say part of a community. To say embodied means I need things that appeal to my senses. I need to hear and to see and to touch, you know. Think of all the ways that Catholic sacraments and Catholic liturgy involves the body. Even an act of praying publicly and singing publicly, witnessing to your faith. Uh, All of that is a way of embodying what we believe. If you divorce church completely from, you know, faith or religion or spirituality, you're adopting a sort of weird angelism. Now, a lot of modern philosophy, trace it right back to Descartes, is angelistic in form. You know, if I say the real me 
is the you know the cogito. The real me is the thinking thing on the inside, um, or Immanuel Kant. You know the the real moral life happens in the purity of my own will. It doesn't have to do with the outside world. Those moves are um, are deeply problematic. I would identify them as Gnostic moves or the language I'm using now, they're angelistic. And, and there's some of that, a lot of that, I think, in this, you know, bracketing of church. Who needs it? You know, I can do it on my own. Yeah, maybe an angel can, but, um, but we're not angels. Here's another interesting finding from Gallup. They discovered that the number one reason that Americans attend church, they say in their own words, is because of the sermon. Three out of four worshipers say that the sermon is the major factor in why they attend church. Now, obviously, this is a survey encompassing all Americans of every religious yeah. persuasion. We can understand why that would be a, a prominent concern for those attending evangelical churches. But how do you read that as a Catholic? I mean, do you, do you think you've talked about our homiletical problems in the past? Do you think it's a problem that if most of them are coming because of the sermon, maybe us Catholics aren't offering great homily sermons. What's your take? Well, that's that's true enough. And, and you say correctly, I've been sort of harping on this for a long time and the importance of preaching in a Catholic context. And I, I take that seriously. They often say people are attracted to music at the liturgy, to community, and to the preaching. And that's true, I think, Catholic Protestant. So I get that. I get the importance of it. And, and we should be working on our preaching. However, as you're suggesting, you know, as a Catholic, no, the reason I go to Mass is the, is the body and blood of Jesus. I go there because Jesus is really, truly, and substantially present there. I love a good homily, and a good homily should lead to the Eucharist. It should, it should illumine the Eucharist and so on. But that's the main reason I go. I could have the worst preacher in the world. I could have every singer singing off key. I could have the worst instrumentalist going. I could have someone that doesn't know what's going on liturgically, but if I got the body and blood of the Lord, I mean, that's what I want. So I'm, just to make that point, I'm, I'm driving that, that, uh, that wedge. Obviously, I want all these good things, you know. But yeah, it's a problem from a Catholic perspective. If you say, my main reason for going to church is the sermon or the music or the community. No, no, no. The main reason is, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ that's on display. That's why, you know, it always breaks my heart when you read those stats about the number of ex-Catholics who are in, you know, various Protestant churches or evangelical churches because they love the preaching. You know, I, I always say, oh, great, I'm glad you love the preaching, but what about the Eucharist? What about the Eucharist? I mean, that that's the main reason. So again, Gallup released this survey, which shows that church membership is in precipitous decline. But then a couple days after the Gallup survey came out, there was Another interesting article published in the Daily Mail, which is a UK paper, the headline for that one said, religious people who stopped going to church reveal reasons why they never will go back. Mm -hmm. And the article covered this thread on Reddit. So you're familiar with Reddit, yeah. Bishop. I know you've done the, the AMAs, the Ask times. Me Anythings yeah. on Reddit. It's basically a giant comment box where yeah. people come right. to discuss things. And one Reddit user started a thread with the simple question, when did you stop going to church and why? Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, the floodgates opened. Yeah. There was thousands yeah. and thousands of comments there. And uh, I spent some time reading them. I had you in the back of my mind. The, the last several years, you know, you've been reiterating the point that we don't have to guess at why people are yeah, leaving the church. They, right. They'll tell us. And we have survey after survey. We have anecdotal evidence like this. 
So I spent some time reading through a lot of these comments. The cool thing on Reddit is that comments can be upvoted or downvoted. If you agree with it, you can upvote it. So we can see the most Mm -hmm. popular reasons rising to the top. I thought maybe we'd uh, talk through, I don't know, four or five of them and and get your thoughts. So again, these are reasons why people stopped going to church. Here's, Here's the first one. I realized that the only emotion that place made me feel church was intense guilt. And now I'm only slightly bitter. What do you say to that one? <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to know more about uh, what kind of church he's talking about. I, I'll just say this. Now, I'm, I'm getting up there in years. But when I was a young person, about the last thing I felt in church was guilty. My generation, they stressed the love of God, how good you are, you know, they were moving away from my parents' generation, got a lot of guilt around sexual morality. So, I mean, I, I find that anomalous. If if that's a Catholic of my generation, it doesn't make any sense. But I don't know where that person's coming from. Maybe it was a church that put a great stress on, on sin, especially sexual sin. So I don't know. I, I would find it a little strange, uh, certainly in the Catholic context since Vatican II. I don't think there's been a hyper stress on, on guilt. Um, you know, it's it's uh, to me more the bland religiosity that might be on display after Vatican II rather than a kind of hard-hitting, guilt-inducing. So I don't know. I'd have to hear more like what church he's talking about. Did you, I'm curious, Brandon, like you're, did you feel, of course, now you came of age as a Protestant and then became a Catholic. Um, did you at any point, I mean, feel that as the primary emotion? That guilt no, was... I, the, I, I'd have to say that's that's pretty foreign to me too. Yeah. And I've, you know, now the last 10, 15 years being a Catholic have traveled all over the place to dioceses and parishes, going to yeah. mass all over the place. And in my sampling, I've yet to go to a, a parish or experience or mass where that was the predominant yes. emphasis was on how guilty everybody is and how guilty you should feel. I mean, I think we're all against a disproportionate emphasis on guilt. Right. But what strikes me, Bishop, is it, it seems like what what's at the root of this question is that if the church in any way makes you feel guilty for doing something wrong, that that's a problem. So well, right. talk about the, the flip end of that, that the church should never make people feel guilty. Is that, is that the case? And that can't be right. Cause that's not Jesus. You know, I think too, Brandon, you know, they, you hear from atheists all the time that, Oh, religion is a wish fulfilling fantasy and it's made up because you want pie in the sky when you die. And I always say, well, you know, okay, I'll buy that in the measure that you will buy, that atheism is a wish-fulfilling fantasy. That the atheist says, oh, there's no God, there's no moral absolute, there's no one presiding over my life, I can do whatever I want. I would submit that's very attractive psychologically. There'd be all kinds of motivation for that belief. So why don't we just say they cancel each other out and let's get on with the argument, you know? But So I don't know, the whole guilt thing, I don't know. Um, if it means that sort of atheist of like, boy, I just need to let go of anyone that's going to tell me what to do. Uh, but there's something you know immature about that, certainly. So we probably have to know more about this, this person. All right, here's another one. Tell me what you think about this one. Once it was my choice and not my parents' choice to attend church, I stopped going except for weddings and funerals. Mentally, I checked out of church and believing in any kind of God around age 10 years old. What do you say yeah, to that one? It's sad. And of course, it, do, it does correspond to what the stats tell us about when people disaffiliate, right? They're much younger than it used to be. Now, that person, 10, that's really young. They're saying like 12, 13 is not unusual. And it also, Brandon, speaks to the fact that we are really bad 
at answering the questions young people have. So I'd want to know, okay, what was it when you were 10 that led you to say, this is all a bunch of nonsense? Well, okay, let me try to answer your questions. What, what were your questions, you know? Because my guess is that if there were a smart, dedicated person that could have provided a good answer to those um, questions, that person might have stayed. But we put, we've so understressed the theological. Now, this, you know, is a drum I keep beating on, but we've so understressed the theological. That that young person, I get it, I get it, when they had their questions, and there were just a lot of good, nice people that were drawing them into, you know, the work of social justice or prayer, all of which is great, of course. But if there was no one to answer the question of a young person, yeah, they said, well, all right, you're all nice people, but but this doesn't make any sense to me. So I, I get that, and that, that's a kind of cri de coeur uh, response, and, and the churches ought to respond to that. All right, how about this one? This one's also very typical, and this one was, was heavily upvoted, so I think it resonates with a lot of people. Uh, the person said, my spouse was raised Catholic. She'd go to church at least once or twice a month uh, and would feel guilty if we didn't go for a span of longer than a month. But then the sex abuse scandal happened and she's had zero interest. She still has her faith in God and Jesus, but has none in religion as an institution, which is pretty much where I always was. Yeah. You know, and I, I wrote a book on this, right? The Letter to a Suffering Church. And we've been following this for a long time. I think it's fair to say, Brandon, it, for the past oh, 20 years or so, it's not been one of the top reasons people have given. But I understand, you know, as time goes by and the whole McCarrick thing especially kicks in with Catholics, that sure, it'll come to the fore. And I completely get that. I get people's frustration with it. Uh, I feel frustrated with members of the institutional church and leaders of it. Um, so, yeah, yes, yes, we, we did terrible things to ourselves by this gross misbehavior. And, and really, really bad leadership. I mean, I completely subscribe and get that. You know, at the same time, I would say, you know, we hold the treasure in earthen vessels. As, as Paul knew long ago, they're the earthen vessels. They were broken in his day. They're broken now. Um, but nevertheless, there's a treasure. And the treasure, sacraments, the Eucharist, the Scripture, apostolic authority, uh, the saints— that's the treasure. And, you know, don't completely abandon the treasure because the vessels are so broken. You know, and again, I, I know whenever you speak on this, you're going to say it wrong. I, I know I just said it wrong, I'm sure. I didn't adequately honor all that should be honored. But um, yes to the scandal of it, totally getting it, regretting it, condemning it but also yes to the treasure that's there despite the, the fractured vessels. Now, I know moving into that space I just described is, is difficult, but that's where I'd urge all of us to go. I think, Bishop, your book, Letter to a Suffering Church, we've now made it available free online. Yeah. You can just download a PDF and read it. Um, so if you have a friend or a family member yeah. who, who, for them, this would be the main reason that they're staying away from the church, have them go check that out. Yeah. Uh, you can find it at sufferingchurchbook.com. Okay, how about this one? Another common one. I, I mean, I've heard this from a lot of my peers and friends. I decided I didn't want someone else determining my relationship with God and what it should be like. Um, what do you say to that one? I would say 
it, it's lovely at the end of a very long apprenticeship and very long development in the spiritual life that you reach that point where you'd say, I have so internalized the, the laws and the rules and the, and the ethos of the Christian spiritual life that I can say I have a sort of um, you know, autonomy. But that's the way a, a saint you know, might legitimately start to talk. But for most of us, Think of you're learning a musical instrument. You know, no one's going to tell me how to play this thing. Well, come on, show a little humility. I mean, you need people that show you how to play this instrument. Now, in time, like your son, Augustine, right, is, is playing the piano very well. In time, please God, he'll reach the point where he'll, he'll, he'll so internalized all of the rules and laws of the piano and the tradition that he can play now in a, in a really creative way. Terrific. That's what you want. But there's a long, long apprenticeship where, of course, you listen to other voices. Um, learning a, a sport, you know, I'm going to swing the golf club any way I want. Well, then you'll be a lousy golfer. I mean, the great golfers have listened to the tradition and they internalized all the subtle complexities of the golf swing. You know, and if, if you're if you're Rory McIlroy or Tiger Woods, you reach the point where you you become a master of golf. But heck, for most of us, it's a long, long apprenticeship. In humility, you know, why would the spiritual life be different? I mean, sort of say just baldly like that. No one tells me what to do in the spiritual order. Well, why? What are you a saint? You're you're already a saint. No, I mean, we, we're all learners. We're all disciples, right? Come follow me, says the Lord. Well, how about that? Oh no, no one's gonna tell me what to do. How about the Lord Jesus through His Church, telling you, instructing you in the spiritual order? You know, I, please God at the end of that. You've so internalized all of it that, that you now, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, as Paul said. But heck, I'm not Paul, you know, I'm not there yet. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm, as you can tell, I'm a little bit impatient with that attitude of, you know, no one tells me what to do. Well, then you're not going to make much progress, you know. It reminds me of a distinction you've made in the past between freedom from restraint, so mm -hmm. freedom from rules, freedoms from people telling me what to do, versus freedom for excellence. That's yeah. the true type of freedom to become an excellent golf player, or pianist, or yeah. an excellent Christian. And I'm also reminded of that great line from Cardinal George, where he said, "Look, everyone is welcome in the church. It's true, all are welcome, but not on their terms, mm -hmm. on God's terms. That right. it's not us who determine what it means to be a Christian or right. what it means to flourish in the spiritual life. It's it's God who's who's showing us the way." Yeah, and you know, can we have at least enough confidence in the church that something of Christ's will is being communicated through? Yes, we're fallen. Yes, we're fragile vessels. But still, you know, I think of in my own spiritual life, uh, there are great figures in the church, and I, I mean the, the great heroes, the church fathers and Aquinas. But I mean a lot of church people that I've known in my own life who have mediated to me the way of Christ. And I think of all they, they flood in my mind right now. All these, most of them have gone to the Lord, but who who helped me on the path? They still do by their example and so on. I think of the liturgy, the, the scriptures that I heard in the liturgy. I think of all the times I've received the Blessed Sacrament. Those are all the ways that I've, I've learned to walk the path. To say just, you know, baldly, oh, no one tells me what to do. I mean, come on, come on. That's a little, that's a little arrogant. All right, let's take one more. Again, these are all responses on Reddit to the question of when did you stop going to church and why? 
thousands of responses. We're looking at just some of the more popular ones. Uh, this person said, the thing that woke me up from all of it was just getting to know people. I got to know gay, trans, atheist, pagan people, all of whom I worked with, and they were every bit as compassionate, intelligent, and honest as the people in my church. What's your take on that? Well, it's it's typical of, of our time, which I've said before is sort of a, a Kantianism, the reduction of religion to morality, right? That what it all comes down to is morality. Uh, we'd say in our jargon today, you know, being a nice person. So if you're a nice person, that's all that matters. And I think our great tradition has always um, stood athwart that. I, I, there, there's more to religion than being a nice person. Um, there's no question that an atheist or any of the people that you name can be good, decent people. There's no, no question about that. But there's more to it than that. There's the there's the entry into this whole world of meaning and experience that's opened up by revelation. Um, what the sacraments offer to us is not just the potential to be a, a nice person. They offer us the potential to participate in Christ, in Christ's way of being. The artistic life of the church, the, the modeling the saints give us, all that is an opening up of a, of a world of experience that is infinitely beyond just being a nice person, you know? So I, 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 I speak against the Kantian reductionism, which is implicit in that observation. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. Today, we are hearing from Tommy, all the way in the land of Karol Wojtyla, Poland. Uh. Tommy has a Great question here about beauty. Here's his question. Hi, Bishop Byrne. My name's Tommy. I'm from Poland. My question is, if beauty is objective, why do we have different musical tastes? Thank you for the reply and God bless you. Hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, so you say beauty is objective. It's not just something that I invent. I didn't make it up. Uh, it's not just a projection of my um, interiority but it's a value that I intuit. But now, musical taste, let's say, you know, so I like rock and roll or I like classical music or I like blues or I like, you know, country music. That's not opposed to the idea that there are, there are real objective uh, values. But you might be given your subjectivity and your training and your experience, especially sensitive to this particular expression of objective beauty. So someone who is uh, geared to Willie Nelson because of their own experience, background, predilection, example, fine. They're, they're getting access to the objective beauty of Willie Nelson. Someone else who's been formed and trained in classical music and, and, and really appreciates uh, Mozart, good. But, but both Mozart and Willie Nelson are objectively beautiful, but we might just have different capacities to appreciate them. I think of like in my own experience as a kid, I, I, rock and roll was my whole world. I, I, that's all I listened to as a kid was Beatles and The Who and The Rolling Stones. And that's the world I knew. When I was in my 20s, I discovered Frank Sinatra. And when I was a kid, Frank Sinatra, I mean, your grandma listened to Frank Sinatra. But I discovered he's actually singing. You know, because most rock singers just kind of shout over the rhythm. Uh, and I love it. My first love will always be rock and roll. But I, I remember when I discovered Frank Sinatra, I was like, wow, we. And I developed a taste. And I love Frank Sinatra. I love him. You know, I listened to all his records, bought his records in those days. 
I cultivated a taste I didn't have before. But it gave me access to the objective beauty in Frank Sinatra, which I didn't have access to when I was just listening to the Beatles and the Stones and the Who, you know. So anyway, I, I don't think that's, a, in other words, it's not a, a true dichotomy between having different tastes and affirming the objectivity of beauty. Bishop, I hear this a lot from atheists in regard to religion. They make a similar case that, look, how could religion be objective? How could there be one true faith when there's so many different people who believe so many different things around the world, so many different religions? Doesn't that mean there's no one true religion? No, you do the Vatican II answer, which is participation. So the fullness of revelations on display in Christianity, I would say in Catholicism. But are there, you know, rays of light, elements of truth? Yeah, so it's not a stark either or of like, you know, we're right, you're all wrong. It's, I'd say, participation, that we are, we have the fullness of it, and then there are varying degrees of participation. But you also, Brandon, think of, you know, people that argue politics all the time. Uh, hey, a lot of different political parties, well, that means there's no objective truth. No, people argue all the time. They'll say, no, I'm, I'm, obje I'm right about this matter. You know, I'm, I'm a Democrat, and I'm going to argue the Democratic position. So just because there's a Republican Party doesn't mean, well, there's no objective political truth. So why would we think this, the opposite's true in regard to religion? A lot of religions, oh, therefore there's no objective truth. No, let's have a good argument about it and see which one of us has it relatively right. All right. Well, thanks so much for watching and listening to this episode of the Word on Fire show. Before we go here, I want to reiterate something I've shared the last few episodes here, and it's that we're continuing work on this exciting new Word on Fire Bible series. Of course, you know we released volume one last year. To, to great success and delight, I think, to a lot of people, we just are preparing to start printing volume two, but there's a long path ahead, and we need your help to bring the whole project to completion. We're anticipating it'll take seven volumes and at least 10 years to complete this whole project. As you can imagine, there's an enormous amount of costs associated with something this epic, this big, but we believe it's worth it. We believe this is a Bible that is generational, that, that our generation can celebrate and be excited about, but also that our children, our grandchildren will continue reading. If you believe in it too, please help us. Visit the website wordonfire.org slash Bible project. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can just click it and make a donation. If you donate $85 or more, you'll receive a complimentary copy of volume two when it comes out this January. You'll be one of the very first people to receive it. So again, please help us. If you believe in this, please make a donation wordonfire.org slash Bible project. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show. Yeah.